Hello and welcome to the Hole in My Heart podcast. This is episode 213, The Value of Singleness. Yeah, guys, welcome to the Hole in My Heart podcast where we talk about how the gospel is good news for everyone, every day. I'm your host, Lori Krieg, and I have alongside me my husband and favorite licensed therapist, Matt Krieg. Hey, it's good to be here. Not in a Zoom room in our basement. Yeah, yeah. our BBC Welcome world back. correspondent. <laughs> I also have with me, we have with us our friend and most professional radio voice among us, producer Steve. Hi, guys. And we are here in the WCSG studio in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And today we're super excited to talk about an important topic that we have engaged Uh, several times, I don't know how many times before, uh, but about singleness. We want to do better as the church to care for and about and alongside single people. And I'm really excited to talk with Danny Treweek today about her book, The Meaning of Singleness. And I just love the subtitle, Retrieving an Eschatological Vision for the Contemporary Church. What's that mean, guys? We're going to talk about it, but welcome, (laughs) Danny. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. Awesome. Uh, all right. So to get to know Danny a little bit better, uh, Dan- uh, Danny, Danielle Treweek, PhD, St. Mark's National Theological Center and Charles Stewart University is the founding director of the Single Minded Ministry and an adjunct uh, teacher at Moore Theological College in Sydney. Uh, she also serves as both the diocesan. Is that how you say that? I think you got it. Di- <laughs> diocesan? Diocesan. Now, now I can't say it. Diocesan. Diocesan. You had it right. Okay. The diocesan, the research officer for the diocese uh, and member of the Archbishop's Doctrine Commission within the Anglican Diocese of Sydney, Australia. You get extra points today. But honestly, guys, Danny gets all the points because guess what time it is in Sydney? It's midnight. So God bless you. It is midnight. Oh, man. Well, we want to get this conversation rolling, and we want to start with the question of the week from last time. Um, And so, Danny, Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, Narnia, which is your favorite and why? Yeah, guys, I'm about to, like, lose large swathes of the audience right on the very first question (laughs) here. Um, Because, uh, yeah, Star Wars, no. I'm sorry, I Uh can't do it. I've watched the first. Hug your ears, boys. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the first movie, about 10 times, the first movie made, I keep falling asleep. Oh. But here's the real clincher. I haven't read Harry Potter oh, and I haven't watched Harry Potter either. So this is what I mean. I'm just going <laughs> to. So let, let me just cut to the chase and say Lord of the Rings is, yeah. is where my jam's at. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll go with Lord of the Rings. <laughs> it's hard to deny Lord of the Rings the top title just because of right. how hard he worked on every layer of it. And how much of his entire life was devoted. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, Matt, are you going to give us your listener answer first? Yeah. So the listener that I really resonated with was Katie, who said, how am I supposed to pick just one? (laughs) Right. Because that's how I feel. I'm Mm -hmm. like all of the above. Every every type of fantasy, like escapist story, I'm, I'm down for. Uh, and that was on Instagram. This too. This is Tammy on Instagram. She said, well, all the options are great. HP is my favorite hands down. It just captured my heart. I read them back when they were quite controversial in Christian circles. Mm. 
Yeah, I feel you. I definitely hid them in my room (laughs) and read them in high school. I decided to find out for myself if they were appropriate for my kids. I read the first book and was hooked and read all books, all the books in one summer. She said it's the ultimate story of good, good versus evil and good overcomes. I'm sure we could spend the entire podcast arguing whether or not that's true, but I appreciated it. And I also liked that last night as I was responding to listener answers, Matt was upstairs reading Harry Potter to our kids. So anyway, for all of you who are now convinced Mm. we're Satanists because we read Harry Potter, (laughs) we'll see you next time. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I could keep, I could just stay here all day because when you're reading archetypes and you, and they don't seem like archetypes, that's a good story. Anyway. Is that, are you referring to Star Wars? Because that's like the All of the above. But I was thinking Harry Potter. (laughs) Yeah. As you were talking about that. Uh, I liked what Dave said. I grew up a big sci-fi guy. Started with Jules Verne, Ray Bradbury, Isaac Asimov, and on to Star Wars. When the movies came out, it was as if my imagination created them. Uh, He said, I have a very special place for Harry Harry Potter. My cousin's spouse worked for Warner Brothers and flew to Scotland to interview her. (gasps) I'm assuming he's talking about uh, Rowling. Rowling, Yeah, Uh, uh, For the movies, and then he uh, drew the first concepts of the characters, and they're still on his wall. Oh. there's a little bit more. This is a fun story. Uh, my cousin's daughter began reading the books in school and said, my dad is interviewing her. The teacher uh, scolded her for lying <gasps> until she walked in with a, a personally autographed copy to her, thanking her for letting her dad come visit. See, teachers. Vindication. That is <laughs> the ultimate vindication. Yeah, right that there, is. Yeah. That is awesome. I mean, in the teacher's defense, it would be like, come on. Right. But that's so great. Oh, man, Danny, we have got to we'll move away from the greatest stories ever told. JK, JK Rowling. (laughs) Just kidding. Uh, And we will move to the actual greatest story ever told, which is the gospel. And so uh, we ask every guest this. If the gospel is to quote Tim Keller, uh, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we're more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. How is that gospel first good news for you, Danny? And how is it still? I am one of these people with a wonderfully boring story that I grew up knowing that, yeah, um, right. you know, which was by the grace of God, his kindness to me, that mm. I grew up uh, going to a church uh, which taught the Bible well. Um, and so I don't remember not a time not knowing that. Um, I think as I grew up, that truth grew up in me and, and with me. Um, though I was reflecting on this, that the church I grew up going to um, was a smaller church. It had a, not a lot of kids my age. Um, and so a lot of my early Christian formation of who Jesus was and who I was in him actually came at the hands of quite a lot of older saints. Hmm. Um, you know, I went to church with my grandmother and my mother, and I remember my grandmother just being instrumental as a, a kind of quiet Christian in my life, reminding me again and again of who I am um, as as a sinner, but who I am as one who's redeemed and forgiven in Christ. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so I, I'm, I'm very thankful that I can't look back on a time when I, I didn't know that to be true. Um, but, of course, you know, life, um, <laughs> as they say, is a journey. Uh, <laughs> and so there's been times in my life where that has uh, not looked different, but I have uh, been confronted with the truth of my own sinfulness and the glory of God's gospel in my life mm. through Jesus um, more and more in different ways. I think 
as a teenager was particularly a very formative time for me. That was when I, I did change churches and I went to a church where there were lots of people my age who were also working out what did it mean to live for Jesus hmm. as a young person. So that was very formative for me. And, you know, as a teenager, you're constantly confronted by your sinfulness, aren't you? Um, <laughs> but, you know, the older I get, the, the more I'm constantly confronted by my sinfulness too. So um, I'm just so thankful that there hasn't been a moment in my life that I haven't known Jesus' love for me and who I am in him. And I, I'm praying that there won't there won't ever be a moment yeah. where where that is actually not fundamentally true uh, in and for me. Yeah. Amen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, all right. So as we dive into this topic of, of singleness, mm-hmm. um, how has, I guess, culture's view or our view maybe in the church of singleness uh, generally changed or like evolved? How's it developed, if at all, from like, early modern Europe's view up, up to now, like mm-hmm. ha- how have you seen mm-hmm. in your, in your study and your research that that has developed? Yeah. I mean, we're talking about four, 500 years of history there. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, it was hard enough just doing that in a couple of chapters, let alone in a couple <laughs> of minutes. So excuse me as I sort of talk right. in gross generalizations here. Um, unless you didn't ask me to do 2000 years of history in one question. Um, But it is, it's a really good question because even actually tonight I was just at a book launch uh, where they were talking about the importance of history and understanding history Mm. um, as Christians so that we understand not just our legacy and our inheritance but who we are in the present because of what we have has come before us. I think that's very true of singleness and marriage in society around us, but particularly in the church, but just in terms of society and really over the last maybe four or 500 years, it's been a massive shift um, to do not just with singleness primarily, actually much more to do with personhood and how we think about ourselves as human mm. beings in relationship with other people. That then has implications for how we think about marriage that then has implications for how we think about singleness. And if I was going to sort of gel it down to, to two main ideas that have really been significant over the last four or 500 years in the West in particular, it's probably um, this idea of individualism really coming to the fore. Uh, you know, the last, that period of time has seen our um, ourselves move from being a, a kind of community-oriented uh, group of people mm. uh, who, yes, are individuals, but we're embedded in community, we're formed by community, we're responsible to community, um, to being much more individualised in our own thinking about who am I and what are my obligations to people around me. Mm. Um, and that has, you know, you can see in the modern age how that has kind of come to peak velocity in lots of ways, but that's been developing very slowly and in very specific ways for hundreds of years. Um, The other thing that I think was key, which really surprised me, I'd never thought about this before until I did my research, is kind of social and cultural cultural developments like the Industrial Revolution. Right. The Industrial Revolution fundamentally changed the way Western society actually worked and so particularly had effect on the household. and the household, which had previously for, you know, all of human history really been this kind of unit with lots of different people in it that certainly had it at its core mother, father, children, but had lots of other people kind of circulating around it, 
had connections with the community outside it. The Industrial Revolution took the household, which had primarily been a place of production, where all members came together to make life work mm-hmm. within the household and in the community, and took all that production into the factory. There's a reason I'm giving you this, you know, sociological history lesson here for people who are getting bored. Trust me, there's, <laughs> there, it's coming to a point. <laughs> um, but it took it took the household um, and made it the privatized refuge from the dirty, dark world of work outside. And so that meant that those relationships within the household became much more based on emotion uh, and and kind of intimate ties. Um, and the, the household became much more insular. Less people belonged to the household. The household became disconnected from the households next door. You know, I, I like to think of that that metaphor of the white picket fence is kind right. of that sign of the household being this is our space, this is a refuge where we retreat to. Um, and all of that had obviously implications for marriage. Marriage became much, much more about the emotional ties of a husband and wife rather than about anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was unique in human history. And therefore that had implications for singleness because suddenly singleness became the absence of those things. Um, singleness didn't have a place in the household but was kind of separate to it. As I said, massive sweeping generalisations, but those ideas of individualism and and kind of the industrial revolution are, are two pillars that just fundamentally change the way that we relate to each other as individuals uh, in the community and in households that had significant implications for the way society thought about marriage and therefore also singleness. Mm-hmm. So that's, it's really interesting because as we've gone kind of down this path of focusing on the individual, focusing on like my personal experience, um, we also seem to have a, I don't know, it seems like more of a reactivity to that when you look at someone who's single, it's like they're, oh, they're wrestling with their singleness or they're, they just haven't found the right one yet. Or there, there's this kind of, there's been a a cultural kind of understanding that singleness is this bad thing. And I mean, since the industrial revolution, has that been kind of a static belief or have you seen that grow? And how, I guess, how do we confront that kind of in modern Mm. church circles? Mm. It certainly hasn't been a static thing. It, you know, as humans, we're, you know, we live in particular moments in time and they're very dynamic. And so there's all sorts of things that are going on that are shaping our views on everything, including singleness. But, you know, one of the things that I think is fascinating is the word spinster, for example, mm-hmm. that developed, you know, in the, the early modern European period. And it developed because uh, a, a large portion of the unmarried women, and I think one of the statistics I think that is in my book is, you know, there's statistics that say about 24% or something of of the population um, of England at a certain period around that time were single women. Mm-hmm. There, there was a significant portion of unmarried women. A lot of them were spinsters. They 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 spun at you know at, they went and they worked uh, to spin fabric, and they were called spinsters because of that. And that was actually a really positive term. This was kind of mm. them going. They, this is a, a way of acknowledging these women's contribution to society. Over time, that word gradually became 
negative. It became a kind of pejorative way of referring to unmarried women um, in the same way that old maid kind of developed all these interesting things. And so certainly it hasn't been static. Um, but I think you're right, Matt, that uh, so in our day and age, we have come to see singleness the, as the absence of a good rather than in any way an independently or inherently good thing in itself. It's the absence of something better, which is marriage. Hmm. Uh, and that really has been a product of the way that we've, as a society in the West, changed our thinking about marriage as being this very privatised relationship that is very much based around emotional intimacy. It, you know, I can imagine a lot of listeners will be thinking, well, what else is what else would it be based around? Right. And I'm not saying that, that that's bad at all, but if you look at human history, our concept of marriage as primarily being about falling in love and those emotional bonds is actually very unique throughout the course of human history. It's a very privileged way of looking at marriage. Mm -hmm. And even Christians 500 years ago would have gone, well, that's not how we form marriages. Even around most of the rest of the world today, so many marriages are not based on the emotional whims of the you know the people involved a lot of them are arranged marriages a lot of them are very much keyed into family choices and community um and so i think we have to come to grips as 21st century western people let alone christians with just how unique our perspective on these things actually is doesn't make it wrong doesn't make it evil but does actually mean that we need to recognize it just because the way we think about these things is doesn't mean it's always been that way or it even should be that way so i love the historical view that you're offering us and i'm like okay we're right on the edge of this so you just said singleness is not the absence of the good of marriage which marriage is good but there's going to be people listening right now and saying well, isn't that kind of the goal of life is to find your person and make Christian babies and tithe and then die? <laughs> so can you talk to the good of singleness, the equally valuable eschatological beautifulness of <laughs> of singleness? Oh, well, absolutely. I mean, I wrote 300 pages about it. So yeah. stop me if you can once you get me <laughs> all going. Right, all right. <laughs> But you know what? I always feel like when I, I'm having this conversation, I always feel like I need to preface it with saying, I'm about to say why I think singleness is itself good, but that doesn't mean that I think marriage is not good. It doesn't mean that marriage is bad. It doesn't mean that I'm in any way trying to diminish the significance of marriage. And I think my feeling of needing to kind of constantly qualify that is not, I'm not alone in that. I know a lot of people feel that way. And I think that just reflects how suspicious and sceptical we are about this conversation. Hmm. Um, I know a lot of people have just assumed my book is an anti-marriage book. What? And, I mean, Laurie, you've read it. No, it's not. It's not. Clearly. <laughs> no, no, it's not. <laughs> but that's but that's because that, that is the lens that we have kind of been brought up bringing to this conversation. Right. That, you know, if you're talking about singleness being good, well, marriage must diminish. That's not what's going on here at all. I think we see in Scripture even in a chapter like 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul is able to say, marriage is good, singleness is good, get on and live for Jesus, guys. Yes. That's kind of the premise there. Yep. But we have, and not just we now, throughout the whole of church history, we've struggled to hold that equilibrium. Um, 
So having qualified all of that and, you know, made sure all your listeners realise that I'm not a marriage hater, um, <laughs> you know, I should say that I've, 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 not, I've never been married myself. I always, I grew up expecting that I would be and I'm still very much open to God doing that in my life if it's his choice. Um, but I've become absolutely convinced that singleness is not just the absence of something good, but it is the presence of something good particularly mm. as we Christians live in the time between Jesus' resurrection and his return. Mm. Um, I think we see, you know, the wonder of the gospel is it changes everything and it particularly, you know, it changes the way we think about marriage as still being a good thing um, and actually having something that has eternal significance as we look towards the, ne the next age, but something that's not ultimate. Marriage is no longer ultimate um, in light of the gospel. Um and I don't know how quickly you want to get to the eschatological side of things, but the let me just say that yeah. one of the, the the problem I kind of brought to my research in my book is that as as Christians today, when it comes to singleness, we tend to only be able to say singleness is good if the single person feels good about their singleness, hmm. if they're using their singleness in ways that other people think is good, if they're, it's a very what I call instrumental view of singleness. It's only good if you're doing good stuff with it. It's only good if you're feeling content with it. If you're not feeling content with it, your singleness can't be good. Hmm. Um, and I find that very unsatisfactory um, for a whole range of reasons. And so I really wanted to grapple with the idea of, is there something in the single Christian life between Jesus' resurrection and his return that actually means that regardless of my experience of it, my singleness is still good? And I think that is where eschatology really mm -hmm. comes in into play. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So explain for people who are like, oh, my gosh, they've said es eschatological like 15 yeah. times. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> so please explain what it means yeah. <laughs> and then why it's important. You know, we, we talk about it again in our book uh, on marriage. So this is why I'm like, we, we talked about it in marriage. Please help us with singleness. Mm. So what is it and help yeah. us understand how it applies. When my um when I first got my copy of my hard copy of my book arrived and was posted to me, um my mum was there and she looked at it and she was really excited and she said the meaning of singleness, retrieving a s a, a, a s and she just she, we were laughing. She just couldn't even pronounce right? it. Let alone yeah. know it was. Right. And that's that's you know I was laughing because that's very normal. Yeah. Um. And I sometimes forget that all the big words uh, are not always helpful in in communicating. But essentially, eschatology, as much as it sounds like a big word, it's actually quite simple in its meaning. It's actually just thinking about the end times. It's thinking about how the promise of the new creation, uh, the life to come, the resurrection age, what we see in the pages of scripture about that promise and how it actually changes our perspective of life here and now as we live in light of the hope of that life to come. Um, so many of uh, the people who are listening now would be familiar with an eschatological view of marriage because they've read Ephesians chapter 5, they've heard this preached in their church that earthly marriage, husband and wife marriage on earth is a, is a picture of or is meant to be a picture <laughs> of the marriage that is to come between Christ, the bridegroom and his church. That's an eschatological vision of marriage. And so, guys, you already know what we're talking about here because, you know, you, you've got a handle on that. Um, 
But my argument is that actually singleness also has an eschatological purpose. Uh, it also is a picture that points us towards a new creation. Uh, and where I where I get that from is um, Jesus' interactions with the Sadducees. It's in each of the synoptic gospels, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, in Matthew, it's in chapter 22. Uh, I won't go into People can go and read it um, themselves, but the upshot is that in his interaction with the Sadducees who were trying to deny the resurrection, Jesus gives us this really insightful glimpse of some very clear aspect of the reality of the life which is to be ours for eternity as resurrected embodied people, and that is that we will not be married to each other. He says in the new, in the resurrection age they neither marry nor be given in marriage, but they will be like the angels. Um, he, Jesus is saying here that while there is a marriage to come, which is between Christ and the church, we actually will not be husbands and wives for eternity. We will be brothers and sisters in Christ. Instead, we'll be sons and daughters of God. In essence, we will be, you know, quote, unquote, single mm-hmm. forever. Mm-hmm. And as individuals, as the church collectively we're married to Christ, but we will be relating to each other as people who aren't married to each other, who aren't having sex with each other. Mm-hmm. That, I think, has to have some impact for how we think about not being married in this life mm. as we live in light of the life to come. It gives a dignity um, and a meaning and a significance and a value to not being married now. If we are going to be our most perfectly human in the next age, perfectly known and knowing perfectly, perfectly loved and loving perfectly, and we are going to be doing that as men and women with bodies but who are not married to each other and who are not having sex with each other, that actually says that we don't need to be married and sexually active in our lives here and now in this creation in order to be fully human. That's what's up. Um, yeah. And so, yeah. So, you know, I told you once I'm, I'm on my soapbox, it's hard to get me <laughs> off. But, it's a good soapbox. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think- Yeah, and there's all sorts of implications that flow out from that. Love it. Yeah, so to that point, I mean, you've just given us a beautiful vision that we need to have, especially as Christ followers, you know, we need to know where we're going and have that eschatological- mm vision and hope that we're moving toward. So now backing up to where we find ourselves today, right now, and Mm, it mm. embedded, you know, in this secular culture, I guess, if you will, you know, we're in this space Mm -hmm. where we're hearing messages and being influenced. Like, I guess, how does, how do you see secular slash evangelical culture, like mimicking each other and sort of you know, borrowing and leeching worldviews mm-hmm. that don't reflect that that vision, um, mm. even now, like in the church and evangelical culture. It's good when, when it comes to singleness. Yeah, yeah. I think we are very good at evangel as evangelicals at thinking kind of we're not shaped by the world around us, but actually we deeply are. We we are deeply discipled by the world mm. around us. And the other thing to say is as well that. The world that we exist in, the 21st West, has been a world that Christians have had a large uh, responsibility and privilege in in shaping over many centuries as well. So, you know, one of the things that I wrestle with in, in the book is that actually the Reformation's thinking on marriage and sex and 
you know, what we would today call singleness, has been deeply significant in shaping how Western society thought about those things, um, just as there's been other forces that have also outside that kind of integrated with them that's led to our present moment. So what I'm just trying to say is this hasn't kind of happened around us. We Christians kind of haven't just looked around and kind of gone, we we find ourselves in this strange alien world. Actually, no, we've shaped this world mm. over many centuries mm-hmm. uh, and we need to have a reckoning with that and recognise our own sort of responsibility in that, particularly um, on the topics of marriage and, and singleness and sexuality. Um, you know, so... As much as we live in a, for example, a a sex-obsessed kind of age Mm -hmm. where our world tells us you are your sexual instincts and desires, you know, to be fully human, you need to live that out. I think as evangelicals we're like, oh, well, we don't believe that. But actually you go back and you look at the Reformers' theology of sex and, you know, Martin Luther literally said that sex is as necessary as eating, drinking and going to the toilet. Yeah, I read that. Unless you have this. Yeah. Yeah, you know, that because, and, you know, there was a context in which all of this was being said, but he wasn't alone. There was this sense that actually as human beings we were made to have sex, we can't stop ourselves from doing it, particularly as those who have fallen. And so you need to either get married so that you can have legitimate sex or you need this special spiritual empowerment from God to stop you from having sex, which is this gift of singleness, which was essentially an invention of the Reformation. So I just kind of give that little bit of history lesson there to sort of show how it's not like, you know, we're actually that different to the world in some of our theological thinking about sex, but that has had significant um, implications for how we think about singleness and marriage today. You know, uh, in in a couple of chapters in my book, I run through all the ways that we think about the single Christian life as being a life of deficiency as being an aberrant life, as being a kind of deviant life. Singleness is an attack, an assault on marriage. Mm. Single Christians are seen in the evangelical church to be spiritually immature um, and selfish rather than their married counterparts. Marriage is the arena in which God does his best sanctifying work, and that leaves single Christians as kind of stunted saints. Mm. Um, You know, that idea that we were made to have some sort of romantic intimacy and that this intimacy of romance in marriage is the ultimate form of intimacy that we need and all the other relationships kind of become secondary to that they kind of become peripheral because you just need this one thing you need this one person who's going to be everything to you Um, the world around us tells us that I think in many senses the evangelical church have kind of Christianized our own version of of those narratives and I spent a year the first year of my PhD research basically reading every book I could out there on Christian singleness, listening to as many talks and podcasts as I could. Uh, and it was pretty depressing oh. to realise just how poor and passive and and weak and superficial and pitiable and tragic our view of singleness was hmm. in in the Christian life and the Christian community. It was... um. It was really awful, actually, um, and it doesn't need to be that no. way. It doesn't need to be that way. Mm-mm. Yeah, thank you, thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I know that you, you said that this 
you've you've been single like your your whole life you're open mm-hmm. to the possibility of god leading you into marriage but it's something that he hasn't done yet um and may never um you know and as we're talking about like coming some of the differences of how single men and women are treated in the church whether it's seen as second class citizens or as you said is is stunted or more immature like how how have you felt that i guess in your own personal walk um are there mm. are there any experiences that you've had that i don't know really signified that yeah um yes and no uh in the sense of I think it has been one of God's kindnesses to me personally that actually my own experience of being single has been complicated and difficult and at times, you know, personally a struggle. You know, marriage is a good thing and to not have been given that good gift is something that does bring right grief. But I haven't had those kind of, you know, as I've read that, spent that year reading all this stuff, I recognise the truth of it. And I saw it in the reflections of many single people I know about their experiences. In God's kindness, I haven't had the same that same depth of awfulness of my own experience. And, you know, as I look back now, I think that was not only God's kindness to me personally sparing me from that, but I, I think it was him preparing me for this work because if I felt crippled by my own singleness um, and just really struggled to 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 grapple with what was going on in the church in this area, I'm not sure that I could have actually dedicated myself to this work. Um, and I so I don't mean that in any exceptional way about me at all. I just think that was one of God's kindnesses to me mm-hmm. so that I could actually speak into this space in a way that wasn't emotionally crippling. Um, you know, I don't want to imply that my experience has been perfect or certainly that I have been perfect in my experience. That's not the case. But I also do recognise I have spoken to enough single Christians. I've, you know, read enough of their stories. I've I've listened to enough of their griefs. I worked in a church um, for about seven years amongst particularly women and so had many, many conversations with single women who just really felt like not only did they feel a great sense of disappointment and grief at not themselves experiencing the joy and gift of marriage, but it feeling like that meant they didn't have a real place of belonging in the church family, Mm -hmm. that, you know, they felt like they were often guests at church rather than family members. Um, You know, they, they would often feel like the applications that were giving in sermons, the language that was being used from up the front, so much of it was sort of, um, focused on mothers, fathers, children, household, family life. The idea that we talk about church as family, but they didn't feel like they were family. Um, it is a real struggle for a lot of unmarried. And we're not just talking about the never married people like myself. There's also those singles who are single again through divorce and death. Um, and in some ways, I think their experience is even more marginal. Uh, they're, you know, they're, they are often even more invisible than the mm. never married people in our churches. And so it is, it can be very, very difficult being an unmarried Christian in the church today. Um, but I'm, I'm thankful. I've certainly had some experience of it myself, uh, but I'm thankful that that hasn't been uh, something that has really marked my 
my journey as a Christian, uh, even as I've been single as a Christian my whole life. Mm. So when I go and teach, you know, I talk a lot about the intersection between sexuality and the church. And I, I tell mm. people, and I give my own version, but I feel like you could give an even stronger theological vision based on your experience and research. I say, if you guys are going to talk about God's design for marriage, you need to care equally about marriage and singleness, which really what I mean by that is y'all need to care about the Missio Day. You need to care about the mission of God more than about getting people together and married and making yeah. Christian babies and tithing and dying. So, Such a lovely vision of the Christian life. I know, but way. really that is a lot of the narrative that we're fed from little kids is when you get married, pray for your husband, pray for your wife, blah, blah, blah. So mm. I guess I'm just mm. to, to be uh, pointed in the question, why must the church care mm. about marriage and singleness equally? Because the church is made up of married and single people. We, <laughs> there are married, I mean, right? it's obvious to say, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. But, but you know, um, when in 1 Corinthians 7, I mean, it's the the passage on singleness and marriage that everyone goes to, but there's that part um, where uh, Paul says to the Corinthians, you know, remain as you were called. Uh, what he's saying there is that he's talking about first-generation Christians here, many of whom are adults being converted as adults, and he says to them, were you married? That's, you know, don't get unmarried. If you weren't married, don't feel like you need to marry. If you were a slave, well, if you can get your freedom, go for it, but don't feel like you need to change who you are, where you are in order to live for God. Remain as you were where God called you. And I think we need to recognise that God calls all sorts of different people to be within his family, mm. brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of God, in all sorts of different circumstances and situations. And so the church just is this amalgamation, this weird, wonderful amalgamation of all sorts of different people. Um, and so the reason to to have a, a really committed understanding and love and care for both married and single people is because there are single people in your church. There are single people in the community outside your church who you are seeking to reach with the gospel. But just as significantly, as we talked about before with the eschatological vision, yeah. the church needs single people. Mm. The church needs married people to point us towards a marriage that's waiting between Christ and the church. The church needs single people to point us towards what our relationships with each other are going to be like for eternity. Yeah. Mm. Um, we, you know, marriage, God designed marriage and singleness. I talk about them as being kind of two portraits that are meant to hang next to each other on the wall. They're a matching set. Mm. And when you turn the spotlight off one of them, the other one inevitably suffers because suddenly you you lose the corresponding picture. You miss the detail. You lose the texture. You, you don't understand the light and shade that's going on because you haven't got the corresponding one there to play off it. And marriage and singleness are not in competition yeah. with each other. They actually complement each other. They need each other to make sense of each other in the church and to make sense of who we are as the church. Mm. Um, and so... I mean, it's a slam dunk for me. Yeah, that's Why it should matter? That's in good. The church. But yeah, mm. <laughs> yeah, mm. that's good. So, all right. So we've got, like Lori said, you know, people listening who are not married, who are single. How would you encourage that person uh, who maybe does feel like kind of they're marginalized or yeah. they're uh, abandoned and 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 they're feeling hurt there? Uh, like, 
they they don't know you know if they should continue uh you know or they should just go find another like a group of just single people like how would you encourage them to to engage and stay Mm. stay in it uh Mm -hmm. you know when when they're feeling like not welcomed i guess yeah it's a tough one and i think we need to acknowledge the real hurt and pain that a lot of singles do feel um i want to i want to validate that um if if that's you i get it mm. um and i i don't think there is any sense in which we want to say just get over yourself that's not yeah. what's going on here right. um but you know at the same time um the church is the household of god it is the body that we've been adopted into we are members of it and we're called to bear with one another. Um, we're called to walk with one another. Uh, and so there are times, um, sometimes extended seasons of life, where we actually do need to bear with the church, even as we, we really feel that is a hard thing to do. Um, and so I do want to encourage single Christians to to do that bearing. And it is it feels hard, I know, to kind of go, why should that responsibility be on me? Well, it's because we're fallen. We live in a fallen world um, and we're called, Jesus calls us to bear each other's burdens mm-hmm. um, and to, to be members of the body to each other. And so that is part of the privilege um, and responsibility of being members of the body. Um, but I want to say to single Christians two things. First of all, God sees you. Mm -hmm. God knows you intimately. He loves you and he has a good purpose and dignity and value to your singleness. And I want to encourage you to have your perspective of your singleness aligned, not with the world's, not with the church's, but with God's perspective. You know, that's where you should be seeking to find um, the meaning in your singleness Uh, And that's hard work to do, um, but we have the Holy Spirit. uh, So I want to encourage you to be pursuing that. But the other reason I want to encourage you to hang on in there, not obviously with the Christian life, because, you know, hang on in there with Jesus, guys, beyond anything else, you know, don't ever let go of Jesus. Um, But the other thing is the church needs you Mm -hmm. as a single Christian. The church, may your church, you may feel like your church doesn't realise that and they may not, but they actually do need you. Um, you are really, really important within the body of Christ. And I feel like we are beginning to have more broadly conversations recognising that more and more. So be part of that conversation moving forward. Commit to it, even as that commitment does involve taking on responsibility that can be really hard um, and can feel burdensome at times. But this is the Christian life, this side of eternity. Um, So hang on in there with Jesus and hang on in there with his people. Thank you. That is a good word for us mm-hmm. to end on today. Uh, friends listening, hopefully you were as encouraged as we were. Uh, we will link to the meaning of singleness, retrieving an eschatological vision for the contemporary church by Danny Truick in uh, the show notes, as well as some of her social media. But Danny, thank you so much for blessing us with um, patient, theological, loving wisdom. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, guys. I really um, have had a fun time. All right, guys, let's go. Now that she's going to bed, let's talk with each other uh, in positively <laughs> in front of and behind her back. But really, what stood out to you from the conversation today, Steve? Well, I, I mean, I, I got distracted in there yeah. uh, just thinking about uh, she, she didn't come out and say this, but the way she articulated what so often happens, the the way we just unconsciously 
how married people unconsciously view single people in the church. I think we think, well, marriage is your final rite of passage. Yeah, totally. You know? And then we're waiting for the single people to have that rite of passage. Mm -hmm. But really, you look at Paul, his final rite of passage was this encounter with Jesus, you know, that uh, left him blind and then scales dropped off and then he moved into the new life. And really, like... If we've been, you know, baptized into Christ, that's the rite of passage, yeah. whether we're married or single. And so we're we're together in that. I'll just jump right there because I, I like what you're thinking uh, application-wise. I'm like, why? It's like you tie your shoes, you go to school, you graduate from college, you get married, you're you have in, babies. Yep, yep. It's like a path as opposed to, nah, we're all on this pursuit of advancing the kingdom of God, our seven-year-old is, our four-year-old is, mm. and it's how does he want you to do that? So we've thought too linearly as opposed to push back the dark, darkness, usher in the light, and then how, what role does God want you to do that? But I like what you said. I want to think about that more. What is the the rite of passage is encountering Jesus, yeah. saying yes to him, and then we just keep moving forward. So much more we could talk about. Yeah. What about you, Matt? Uh, well, I mean, I loved the passage and the synoptic gospels that she brought up about the Sadducees trying to trap Jesus with yeah. with this whole notion of like, who's the who's this person who died? You know, which brother is she going to be married to and all right. this kind of stuff? Uh, because that was so formative in, in my own kind of journey as we were going through kind of some of the periods that we wrote about in our book where, where there was this setting aside of like sexual fulfillment um, and, and kind of that idolatry of sex and how as the church we have idolized it and therefore totally. it makes singleness seem unapproachable and unappealing and unimportant. Um, and when, stunted and like, stunted, so yeah. Wrong. When yeah. in reality, like that, that is that that experience of heaven, that eschatological view, is what allowed me for for that season to be like, I don't need that. I truly do not need this type of engagement. I do not need that. And and that's something that someone who's single is is doing kind of longer term in this life, but ultimately that we're going toward that same destination. And and I even think of the person who who wrote to you, just asking like, oh recently, yeah, like recently, and you you forwarded it to me like, hey, how how does how do you do this if you don't feel like that romantic kind of passionate connection with your spouse if that's not there like how do you maintain it and it it, it kind of flies right toward this so yeah. that is not the meaning and the purpose of marriage to to have this passionate kind of romantic fulfillment. And, and there's something so much greater that we're all moving toward, and we have to keep our vision and our eyes on that. Mm-hmm. It's not the purpose of life, so it shouldn't be the purpose of marriage. Yeah, that eschatological vision is how we're actually able to stay married, is because we're like, oh, this is all about God, <laughs> and our pursuit, better and for worse on some days and others, is showing people in the process not the perfection, is showing people a picture of how Christ loves the church, just like our single friends show us a picture of how beautiful community uh, Mm -hmm. is going to be in eternity. Mm -hmm. Okay, I feel like there's some repentance required on behalf of of us, as well as um, just rejoicing in uh, the two portraits side by side. Okay, guys, what did you think about the episode today? Feel free to hit us up on the socials. Just me on the socials, not these guys. (laughs) 
<laughs> they're not there. Uh, but you can follow WCSG or Lori Krieg or email us at podcast at lorikrieg.com. Uh, we don't really have a question of the week for next time, uh, but we would like to hear if you guys do have any thoughts on what's your word for the year. Some of you guys do that or what are you praying for for 2024? We would love to hear it. But guys, this is it of the episode today. If you like the podcast, feel free to rate and review. Thank you again to Danny Trueweek. I hope she's fast asleep and living in tomorrow. Uh, thank you to WCSG for hosting us this week and every week. Thank you to the Zach of all trades, video guy Zach and his amazing intern Delaney. For all of us here at the Hole in My Heart podcast, we'll see you next time. <laughs>